Welcome to Fret Not with me, Rosie Bennett. Fret Not is the podcast that aims to demystify the learning process that we all go through in our lives, work and otherwise. I'll be talking to the heroes and champions of our field about the lessons that have most defined their careers and help us to figure out how we can learn from what they've already figured out. Nothing in life is a linear process, so let's get more at ease with the ups and the downs and realise that wherever we are in our journey, we really aren't alone. This podcast is brought to you by Augustine Strings, the originator of the original nylon string, my string of choice, and a company full of my favourite people in the guitar world. Check them out at augustinestrings.com. Today I talk to Michael Chapterlin, legendary classical guitarist turned fingerstyle acoustic player. I've wanted to talk to Michael ever since we started Fret Knots, and not just because he's a fantastic and interesting individual, but because I grew up knowing of and having watched online the legendary masterclass he had with Andres Segovia, where Segovia famously threw him out after him only having played eight bars. This interview is one of the most heartfelt interviews I've had the chance to have. Michael was so honest about his life and his process. We got the chance to cover how that class shaped the rest of his life and how he's dealt with and still deals with the fallout. We dived so deep into Michael's emotional process that we only realised in conversation later on that we hadn't offered any uplifting advice. So Michael left me a message for you. He says, I storied so much that I forgot to tell you what made it tolerable for me and also made public performing possible and even joyful. I became a Zen student during college. Still am. I sat a lot. All that subjectivity that had made me vulnerable to the feelings and energy of others just went away. You know, in the old days, in the, in the 70s, 60s and 70s, and I started playing classical guitar in 1974. Mm-hmm. And so there was a formula, which still kind of exists, but then it really worked, which was if you had certain things on your, on your resume and in your, in your body of work, if you had them, you would be a star. And they were, you needed to have a good uh, debut in New York. You needed to have good reviews. You needed to have uh, somebody write you something and you needed to have the letter from Segovia, you know, like God has laid a finger on his brow and it won't be long until his name is heard throughout kitchens in the world. And so I had all that stuff, but the Segovia thing was never going to happen because he was so old and he lived in Europe and I lived in the US and it's just never going to happen. And then when he was like 92, uh, there was a, a letter that went out to the world. We had letters back then. There was no internet yet. And the letter got to all the you know, major players in the world and that USC was going to have this master class with Segovia. And so, of course, everyone applied for it. And so I didn't think I was ever going to be next to Segovia. But then once I got involved in the class, I was going to get the letter. I was sure he's going to love me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I'd have the letter soon and I would be, I would have God lay a finger on my brow and all that good stuff was going to happen. So I, I never expected that it was going to go poorly, but obviously it did. I mean, I, I really was on this, on this curve to, to be a famous classical guitarist mm-hmm. for, for the right reason. And, 
you know, back then there was no internet, there was no email, there was just the grapevine that went out in letters and phone calls. And when that happened, even though, you know, the last lesson I had with him was quite good and he seemed to like me and certainly the audience did, but oh, everybody talked about it, you know, before the internet, before those videos, everybody knew about it anyway. But all they knew was that this jerk went to Segovia in Los Angeles from New Mexico with the intention, and it really was told this way, that my intention, they said, was to anger Segovia. And, you know, it worked, but it wasn't true. Mm -hmm. But concerts started going away, management went away, recording contracts went away, everything went away. And I would say probably I could give that event some credit for me turning to arranging pop music because the classical world was so close to me, the classical guitar world was so close to me that I just started looking at the exits and seeing what else I could do. And bam, here I am. <laughs> it's, it's really quite remarkable, but you're right. It's so difficult, I guess, when you don't have access to the videos, you just hear a story and things get out of hand so quickly. Oh God, you have no idea. It, was, it ruined my life. I mean, I was a new professor at the University of New Mexico. And when I got back, it was within a, a month, maybe even quicker. There were letters to the editor of the paper saying I should be fired, that I disgraced the university. People didn't call me back, you know, around the country, around the world. It was terrible. It ruined my life. I mean, I've managed to recover. I managed to stay in music, but Wow, it was terrible. And how old were you at that time? 20, I was 29. 29, okay. That's, I had uh, a new child on the way. In fact, my pregnant wife was sitting in the audience when he threw me out of class. And she said, I, and she was due in a month or two. She said, I can't risk this, I gotta go. She left. I, I guess I, in theory, I know that that must have been so difficult, but somehow because i've only ever heard it talked about in a legendary way not in a sort of disgraceful way also that interview that you gave afterwards talking about your impressions from it i i just thought that it came across so well yeah i, I don't know it's, it's funny i never really thought of it i mean funny peculiar not funny haha but um, <laughs> i hadn't realized how how harrowing it must have been actually the first thing that you said was it was a deeply profound experience certainly was that. I mean, I also had a bike crash once when I broke all my ribs and my collarbone. That was profound too. <laughs> but it was very profound. You know, I felt it. I remember feeling at the time, you know, it was after the event, there were, there were, everybody had four lessons and it was spaced over two weeks. And after that event, the bad event, I walked to the professor, Jim Smith, who had organized it and who had been close to Segovia off and on for a long time. I walked to him and I, there were three alternate players who were there in case one of us got sick or got thrown out of class. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I went to Jim Smith, walked right off the stage. I mean, I had to go after the event, I had to go sit back down on the stage and watch 
some more people take their lessons. It was awful. And after we finished and we walked off the stage, I went right to Jim Smith and I said, tell one of those alternates, the lucky day's here because I'm not going to be here anymore. Mm. And Jim Smith, probably one of the most important things that ever happened to me, Jim Smith said, Michael, I'm not going to take your resignation tonight. He said, it's two more nights until you play for him again. We have plenty of time to get an alternate. And I want you to think about it and tell me sometime before your next lesson. And it was amazing that he did that because I was done. I was going to be on the on a cab out of USC and out of there. So the next day, my teacher was in town, Bruce Holtzman. And I called him up and I said, Bruce, can you come give me a lesson on how to not get thrown out of my next lesson with Segovia? <laughs> and he did. The lesson was something like this. He said, look, in his New York way, he said, look, he said, you used to play exactly like Segovia because I taught you to. Now, at the time, I had come up with a new way I wanted to play. You know, I wanted to play lots of free stroke. I wanted that texture to be much more even, not so much rubato and, and you know, it was basically anti-Segovia. And I'd also changed my, my attack so that my tone spoke more like a harpsichord than like the cello sound that Bruce had taught me. And so I wasn't in a condition to have Segovia like me anyway. And the other thing was you were supposed to know about Segovia. If you didn't listen to his records and play just like him, he wasn't going to like you. Mm. I didn't know that. And I was at an age, you know, I just finished college. I just become an academic at a new university as a professor. And I was in a place where I really believed that diversity was what we all wanted. Mm. You know, I didn't want my students to play like me. I wanted them to play like them, but that was a different generation. So Bruce comes over and he says, all right, number one, we have to pick a piece that doesn't have any fingerings. I went, what a great idea. Because, you know, the main problem was fingerings. Yeah. Cavatina by Tansman was published without fingerings. And he says, play this. You used to play this great. And so I did. I learned it again. I hadn't played it in a long time, but I learned it again. Practiced, you know, like 24 hours. <laughs> and, and then he would say, you know, I played for him. We had a long, long lesson. He'd say, look, play it slower. He said, play with rubato. He said, make your tone better. And he just kept hammering away at that. And I kind of came back to remembering how much I liked playing like Segovia. <laughs> and so when I showed up at the class the next time, you know, it sounded a little more to his liking. Mm -hmm. And so Bruce, Bruce and Jim, you know, deserve all the credit for whatever bad would have come of that if I would have quit the class. Because I didn't get thrown out of my lesson again, and because it went really quite well. Have you ever seen the movie The Natural? With, it's a baseball movie with Robert Redford. Wonderful movie. But at the end, he hits it, he hits it into the lights. And the lights all explode in the stadium. And so I finished the last note. Oh, you saw the video. I finished the last note, and he didn't get to dismiss me. The audience went crazy.
And so I was pretty high off of all that the next day when we had the interview. So I probably mitigated a little bit my enthusiasm about it over the years, but it did change me back to playing more like Segovia. That's interesting. Um, the first time that I watched that interview, I got something completely different from it than I did this time round. So this must be five or six years later that I'm watching it again. I had the feeling maybe that there was pressure to not put any of the blame on him. And I think you said something like, you know, oh, well, I, when I teach a student who's been playing for a couple of years, of course I can hear, you know, that they're fresh to this and he must think that of us. Um, and I wondered, well, one, have you ever watched it back? I have. And when you listen to yourself playing, do you hear now from a different level of maturity the things that you think that he heard in the playing? Or do you, do you think that it was justified? <laughs> when I listened to the playing in that class, and there were three others, I, I can listen to those pieces too. I don't, can't tell you what they were offhand, but I mean, he didn't get angry at me because I didn't play beautifully. He got angry at me because I changed his fingerings. And then when he asked me if it was a bad idea, I'd say, no. He said, well, why do you do it? I said, because it's good. You don't talk that way to a 92-year-old maestro who's the most famous musician who ever lived. What a moron. I mean, it was so stupid. <laughs> so full of myself, you know, young man, baby on the way, new job at college, won the GFA just a couple of years before. Yeah. I wasn't cocky, but I was confident and I was foolish. So yeah, I was cocky because <laughs> you don't act foolish unless you're cocky or dumb. And I wasn't dumb, mm -hmm. maybe. <laughs> I actually, I, I wanted to say it as well. I really think that you played fantastically in, in those classes, especially the, um, the Tansman, because I've played that and know how tricky it is. And was it more difficult to come to terms with like the aftermath and the way that people talked about it because it had been so good in the end? Do you think it would have been different yeah, of course. and worse? Of course. Yeah. I, I've, I felt like there was a certain, uh, not heroism, but it was a certain rock star element to playing for him the last time and having it go so well and literally having the audience silence him. So he couldn't even dismiss me. And I thought that, that was a, you know, a big victory. And so when I started hearing about this, this rude imbecile from New Mexico that got thrown out of Segovia's class for trying to make him angry, mm. I knew what that meant. I knew that I was done for in the class of our community. And I was, I was right. It was the end. Not because people didn't learn the truth later, but it was decades before there were videos on the internet mm. nobody saw that that video mm. and were you able to defend yourself at the time or was it something that happened far away from you that you didn't really get to justify it well as i said it happened on unm's campus you know there were letters to the editor saying i should be fired for doing the most humiliating thing that any professor could ever do to the university so it was in my face everywhere and it was a lot of years you know, I, I once said something to somebody, you know, this class, it wasn't what you heard. He says, 
And I told him what it was. He says, oh, well, I heard you kicked his ass in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> he was kidding. Crazy. And at 29 as well. And did it mean everything to you? Yes. I wanted to be a classical guitarist. Yeah. I wanted to be the new American classical guitarist. Yeah. And all the indicators were that I was making some progress toward that. And after the class, it was over. That's, it's a lot. How long had you been playing? So you started playing guitar, you said in 74. That's when I began studying classical. You started guitar. studying guitar then. So you were 18 when you started? I was. You've been playing just 10 years at yes. that point. So you went straight from not playing guitar to studying an undergrad with um, Bruce Holtzman? Yes. And Bruce, he's like this, this uh, detective who always solves the crime, you know? You play for him, he's not thinking about lunch, he's not thinking about where his next coffee. Mm -hmm. He's in it. Mm -hmm. He knows, you know, at some point, he knows what you need to do better, and he tells you. Now, does everybody do it with the level of enthusiasm that I did? Probably not. But, you know, I was, I had serious father image problems when I met Bruce, mm. who, who very, you know, even though he was a few years older than me, he very much was a kind of a father figure. You know, he was this worldly man from New York and he carried a purse and he wore elevator shoes and he was just so cool. And he played the guitar so beautifully, you know, he's sort of put it away since then, but he played so well. And I had grown up with a fighter pilot father okay. who was brilliant and obviously good at what he did because he's still alive. But to please him, and I can see it now why it was so hard to please him is because he was probably with the most brilliant mind I've ever met. And, uh, you know, he spent his life doing incredibly dangerous things. And so I never could really get in a position where I felt like he really thought I was great. And Bruce was willing to give that right from the beginning. He gave me the first lesson. I was ready to all play for him. And he went, takes my hand, puts it where he wants it, tells me how to strike the index finger on an open B string. We spent 40 minutes on that. And then he said, now go do that for four hours a day this week. And next week, we'll start with the middle finger. And when I showed up the next week, he was blown away because it was just what he'd hoped for. That's all I did. I didn't look at any stuff that I used to play. I just played the index finger. You know, when I was a kid, I was an electric guitarist and I played in rock bands and I really liked it. You know, it was, it was fun. And we lived in a Navy town in Pensacola, Florida, and there were lots of places to, to play. And we got paid really well. And I was sort of a local rock star. But I never really got very good at it. Mm. It was like I wanted to be, you know, as good as Jimi Hendrix or Clapton, or, but I couldn't figure out how to do it. I did my best. You know, I was good enough to play in this band. Mm. And so when I got to Florida State, and part of the, the reason was because there was no map. I didn't have a teacher. There was no Internet. There was no way to, unless you were amazingly gifted with your ears, and your intellect, mm -hmm. and the connection between ear, intellect, and fingers, 
unless you have that, it's hard. It was hard to learn how to do that stuff. Some people did, but I didn't. So when I got to Florida State and Bruce gave me a roadmap, then I knew I knew what to do. I was always going to know what to do. So I think things went kind of quickly because I had such amazing teachers and so much satisfaction that somebody could tell me how to get good at something. That was great. When you were growing up, did you have a strict household or were you looking for boundaries and rules? Fighter pilot father? Yeah, it was pretty strict. He was home a lot then? or um... Well, the cool thing was he'd go off on cruises because he was in the Navy. Mm -hmm. So they'd get on a boat and go away for nine months and that made things a lot lighter. You have a good relationship with your dad? So... It's good now. For a long time, we didn't talk much, and then I grew up and got over it. Yeah. <laughs> he did the best he could, and what he did was really great. What did your mom do? My mother was sort of his opposite. She was really sweet. She was also really smart. Uh, but she stayed home until I finished high school. Mm -hmm. So she was always there, and she was always kind. And she's always soft and gentle to sort of uh, compliment my father's sternness. And she's still living and we have a great relationship. That's lovely. And how did they take the guitar as a career? Was it something they could get behind? Or? The only thing that would have made my father less comfortable than going off to college to be a musician was if I was going to go off and be a dancer. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was horrified he was mortified and in fact the last he, he still paid for me to go to college and he still drove me to college you know god bless him mm -hmm. and on the day that he dropped me my mom and he dropped me at fsu he said please don't do this he said and it, and it was a moment of of authenticity of candor of love, he said, please don't do this. Vietnam was just kind of wrapping up. He said, I can get you an appointment at the Naval Academy. You'll never have to walk on the ground as a foot soldier. Please don't do this. When things kind of fell apart a little bit later, what was their reaction then? Were they supportive? They didn't know. They didn't know? No, I didn't talk about it. With anyone. Okay. Even even my ex-wife, we didn't talk about it. We just, it was almost it was kind of like a mark of shame. The whole thing was just shame. Mm. And have you talked about it now with them? My father never. Mm. My mother told you talk about everything, so she knows all about it. She's watched the video probably you know a hundred times. Yeah. She was compassionate, of course, always about everything. And that was no exception. Mm. I don't think she really understood it until the video was available a million years later. So I sort of lived, you know, in my own dark scarlet letter place for a long time until the, until the video went on the internet. And then I got freed, you know, I got to take the letter off. I got to come out of the prison. So then with your father, did you sort of make it out as if it was really your choice? Well, it got, it got messy not long after that. In, uh, 
I remember I went to a competition in Caracas, the Alira Diaz competition, yeah. expecting, you know, that I would win that one. And I was really ready and I didn't. But while I was there, I started getting a painful feeling in this finger. And, you know, I knew so I knew so much about people getting injured. And I think David Leisner was just decommissioned at that moment. And I, I just thought, well, it was nice. It's over. I knew that it would only get worse. And I, some of that is just because of my experience with back trouble. You know, thanks to the footstool, my lower back is completely destroyed. But it started going in the 80s and it never reversed course. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And then I had surgeries and it got worse and I had surgeries. And so when this happened, my only conditioning about physical problems was that. So I just knew that it was over. And, uh, and I was kind of right. It got really terrible for a lot of years. Uh, that was 1990. And I probably just in the last four years have been at a point where I just play as much as I want. So during those years, as my hand strength was declining, the symptoms were very unusual. It wasn't a diagnosable thing, at least not then. They didn't know what it was. It wasn't focal dystonia. It wasn't tendonitis. My hands were always cold. They were always swollen and red and weak and I just couldn't play you know I, I know you asked me a question but I'm getting off and I'm getting off again but this is a this is a fun story this is a fun uh, trauma story also in uh, the reason I started playing pop music was because in 2000 maybe the late 90s I got a gig it was when CDs were first happening and they called it audiophile, you know, these companies that produce classical music for CDs. Mm -hmm. And I got signed with a company called Newport Classics. They're all gone now. I mean, everybody's gone now. But uh, the project was to play uh, music of Manuel Ponce, who I was really into at the time, because I had recently moved to New Mexico and I wanted to be a New Mexican. You know, I was working hard on my Spanish and I knew a lot about Ponce. And so I made a record of Ponce and it went really well and it got amazing reviews and it was like, oh, I'm free. This Soviet thing is going to go away and I'm. And what happened was the owner knew somebody at Time Life Music. Do you know who that is? Time Life Music? No. The company that you used to have operators are standing by commercials all the time to sell records to sell music and they had a project called piano by candlelight and it had sold a billion records i mean they made so much money it was just a guy playing pop music and show tunes with some strings and whatever on it 40 songs two cds and they said we've decided we're gonna we want to do one with guitar and he said do you want to do it i said no i don't play pop music he said do you want to be a millionaire I went, yeah, kind of. He said, then take this gig. So, okay. So I took the gig. I could hardly play at the time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I would go, you know, weeks, forever. I wouldn't play. If I get a concert, then I would work really hard. But at this point, it was so terrible that I couldn't use my right hand for anything. 
My whole life was structured to how can I not use this hand except when I need to play. And so I signed the contract and they gave me like an advance of like $50,000. And so I was all in and I couldn't play. <laughs> and I didn't know anything about playing pop music. Mm -hmm. I had played, I had done lots of transcriptions. So I knew how to take a piece for this instrument and make it work on this instrument. So the time starts getting closer, you know, it's due I think it was due in October of whatever year that was. It must have been 93 or 4. And it was suddenly summertime, and Time Life was going to shoot the commercial. And this is a company that only advertises when the TV time is so cheap that they can share the cost of it with the TV stations. Mm -hmm. But they do every station in the world. And I've got like three months to get this project done. And I'm the, I'm the producer too, so I have to hire the other players, I have to get the studio. I can't play. The stress was beyond anything that I'll ever experience. We already spent the money. <laughs> I can't give it back. And I ended up going to emergency because I was in such uh, terrible anxiety. That day I booked the studio. I was living in Albuquerque. The studio was in Santa Fe, it's about an hour drive. And I would book some time and then I would learn, I would make an arrangement only using my left hand because I couldn't use my right hand. Mm -hmm. And then I book a date and I went for the first session and I recorded seven, seven songs. And then I couldn't use my right hand for another week or two. So I started doing that and I'd get the thing and I finally got the thing done. And when they shot the video up in the mountains near Santa Fe, it was beautiful video. It was fantastic. I, I wanted to date myself. I, I looked so amazing in the video. And there was a chick they brought in who had these drapey kind of things in the mountains. And oh, it was fantastic. I didn't have a single piece done. So they had to just make up stuff to play while I'm supposed to be playing these songs. So the, the rap party after the after the shoot, all the vice presidents came out from the East Coast. They're hanging in Santa Fe. It's a really nice place we're eating at called uh, Anasazi. There's movie stars all around. They're not with us, but there are movie stars mm -hmm. in there. And I was just, I couldn't have felt any better. Mm -hmm. And the guys, one of the vice presidents said, you know, we're really jealous of you. I said, what? He said, you're going to be so rich. We calculated that your take in the first year will be $6 million. You probably don't know this history, but it corresponds with an adjacent thing that happened in the United States that was one of the most cataclysmic things that's ever happened. The day that my record was supposed to be released in every TV station in the world, but only for bar, for shared time. They couldn't pay for it. The O.J. Simpson trial started. What happened was every they put the, the trial on TV and every human across the planet, except for me, was watching O.J. Simpson trial 24 hours a day. And Time Life couldn't get their ads anywhere. So the project died. And so did my $6 million. Damn.
You should write a book about all the people you've been screwed over by. It's already a strong <laughs> list. Segovia and OJ Simpson. That's already, uh, yeah, that's heavy. <laughs> Have you been screwed over by any more high profile individuals? Yes. Yes. Really? Yes. <laughs> but they will be, they'll, they'll be remaining anonymous today. That's enough trauma to share with you for, for one interview. No, it's completely fine. This is the conversations that, uh, I want to have with people because I, I think because there's such a big guilt culture anyway in classical music, it's just nice to hear stories that aren't like how difficult it was for me and look how far I've come, <laughs> you know, huh. I think it's, it's nice to talk about the things that are more difficult because I think in some way we all, I mean, we don't all struggle with Segovia or um, OJ, but you know, we all, all struggle with all kinds of miscellaneous things that are really difficult to um, describe. I mean, I, I, I would say that I'm the opposite of the stories you just told about people who've done so well from where they came from. Where I came from, you know, a middle class with the officer father in America during the time that I was born and grew up, if I didn't have some success, I'd be just a complete loser. <laughs> and frankly, I think compared to where I started and the advantages I was given by my parents, I haven't done very well. I'm not going to brag. Do you really feel that way? I do. I feel, I feel for the most part, I've failed in this, in this career. I don't, I don't feel all that bad about it, but I do feel like it's been a failure. I'm glad that the karmic path that I've traveled on, for the most part, I'm glad that it's delivered me here. Thank you so much for um, talking about this. I, I, I found it really valuable. It's a very good lesson, which is actually what we're meant to be talking about. Um, it's, um, I think it's a really valuable lesson. It really helps me to think that I really shouldn't take anything for granted and keep pushing on. I mean, you been so ambitious with absolutely everything you've done. I think it's, uh, it's quite incredible. Um, but I will ask you at least one of the questions because there's meant to be a format actually of this. Um, what is the lesson that's been the most meaningful to you? To be nice to people. I just think that life is hard for almost everyone at some point. And the last thing they need is somebody not being nice to them. Mm -hmm. I saw a movie when I was a kid, which was my mother's, one of her favorite movies called Harvey. And I always remember it. He was, it was Jimmy Stewart, who was a famous actor in the old days. And it, he had a friend who was a six foot white rabbit. And of course he was the only one that could see him and his mother or his wife or, or his sister was trying to get him committed to a lunatic asylum lovingly she thought that was the place for him and, and he was having a fine life there were no problems except that he talked to this guy that nobody could see and it's a fantastic movie you know a lot of times old movies are so much anachronism they just don't work in modern times this one does but the, the climax of the movie is near the end and they're in a restaurant and there's the psychiatrist and the sister and Jimmy Stewart's character and of course his friend Harvey and they're they finally get down to serious you know why do you do this why why do you act like this and he goes I spent the first half of my life being oh so clever 
that then occurred to me I should spend the rest of my life being oh so kind. <laughs> it's such a beautiful moment. Do you think that people have in general been kind to you in your life? Oh, a few. Most not. It's not a real common way to be. But most people have been polite to me, which is worth a lot. But, you know, we move in circles where people are much more commonly trained to be polite. So, yeah, I've, I've been around a lot of people that are quite polite. You know, what are they thinking? What are their intentions? I don't care. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I guess that's a good, a good point. It's true. It's, um, I think it doesn't help the image that classical music already has of being quite distant. I wish that more people would speak their mind because there always seems to be a game of not really knowing what people think of you. It's a really strange world, actually. I, I know that it was very disappointing and life-changing for you, but I do kind of hope that you enjoy the life that you have now because I think that it's, I do think that it's a better one. It's a strange thing to dedicate yourself to, your talent and your spirit and your love to an activity that's practiced with so much not love. I haven't played a classical festival for a while, and I do find that they're a little more disarmed when I walk out with a steel string and no shoes on and plugged in. It's kind of like, oh, well, that's our retarded cousin, Michael. He does this. And they, they let their thing down a little bit. But mostly I don't play for the, that public anymore. I don't, I don't think I want to. Thank you so much for talking to me. This has been a real dream of mine. Well, that was wonderful talking to you. If it turns out that you did the whole thing wrong, we can always do it again. <laughs>